0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to elevating conversations about biomarker testing to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Brain Tumor Awareness Month, guest host Dr. Howard Hoxter welcomes Dr. Jennifer Moliterno for a conversation about the treatment and diagnosis of glioblastomas. Dr. Moliterno is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine and Dr. Hoxter is the clinical program leader of the Gastrointestinal Cancers Program at Smilo Cancer Hospital.
1: So, Dr. Moliterno, can you tell us how you got interested in the area of neurosurgery and specifically taking care of brain tumors?
2: Sure. So, first of all, thank you so much for having me this evening. I um, I became interested in neurosurgery very simply. Um, I always uh, wanted to be a surgeon, although when I was a young child, I was afraid of blood. So my parents didn't quite understand that, um, but nonetheless encouraged me to pursue what I wanted to. And um, I, So
1: you went into the field that had the least blood.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, I wanted to be a heart surgeon and, yeah. and I ended up, so I overcame my fear of blood and, and I ended up um, not being too impressed with heart surgery, and so um, it wasn't brain surgery. It wasn't brain surgery. And so when I was studying neuroanatomy, I was fascinated how you could have a lesion in the brain, or an abnormality in the brain, and you could predict exactly where it was just based on having a good history and physical exam. Um, and then I spent some time with the neurosurgeons, um, and really was fascinated and enjoyed it. So I put two and two together and became a brain surgeon and then um while i did my residency training here at yale um i was really drawn to the brain tumor patients um i think that it's a, a population of patients where you're seeing them at their most vulnerable um and I, I i like to be there for them when when they need me the most and so that's what kind of drew me to that and in in terms of the surgery it, it's typically complex and challenging especially for for certain types of brain tumors and so That solidified my interest, and so then chose to do some some fellowship training at Uh Memorial Sloan Kettering.
1: So you did many years of surgical training, and then neurosurgery training, and then another fellowship in brain tumor. So
2: I did seven years of neurosurgery training, um, and then one year of of fellowship training um, at Sloan Kettering.
1: After four years of medical school.
2: After four years of medical school. Okay. After uh, four years of college. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> of course.
1: Okay. Well, uh, we know you are w- well trained <laughs> and very expert in dealing with these things. So, so what? How do people usually show up when they have? Um, Primary brain tumors what 's what what is usually brings them to medical attention, and how do you usually see them for diagnosis
2: so usually people are referred to me oftentimes most times after they have already. Uh, presented to another doctor, and so usually um, uh, they'll have some sort of issues, whether it's headache or seizure or word-finding difficulties or weakness, depending, of course, on the location of the tumor, Um, and that will prompt them to be seen by their primary care physician or neurologist or eye doctor. or even times they'll you know, be in a car accident and it can be incidentally found by chance. Um, uh, but nonetheless, they, they get to me. Um, and by the time they get to me, of course they're understandably scared um, because they have a new diagnosis of a brain tumor. They don't quite understand the diagnosis. Um, and then of course they're there to see a brain surgeon. So um, usually they're, they're not too pleased to see me at first. Um, and I try to, to change that as best as I can.
1: Well, that's a tough job, so. It is. But I I agree that we often see patients and get to bond with them and have really wonderful relationships. Absolutely. So are, are brain tumors, primary brain tumors now, very common?
2: So, you know, if you ask me, they are, of course, because that's what I do day in and day out. But but no, largely no. And, you know, the one thing to to explain and to, to caution to people is, you know, everybody has headaches or everybody will have, you know, some vision trouble here or there and maybe just need glasses. So this is certainly not to scare people Um to think that that you know everybody walking around has a brain tumor. So no in 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 the grand scheme of things, things they're definitely relatively uncommon. Um, but but nonetheless they they do occur and we do see quite a few.
1: And more often one would tend to see something like either speech problems or weakness on one side or um, Something that we would call a quote focal neurologic finding, compared to like personality changes yeah, or it it
2: really depends. And you know when when I always say when when the tumors occur in location. So if there's a tumor that occurs in a location um, that we refer to as eloquent brain. Um, which is a high-functioning part of the brain, so an area near speech, an area near motor, which controls strength, an area near nerves that control hearing and balance and and things like that. Oftentimes, patients will present earlier with smaller-sized tumors um, because they will have, as you said, a focal neurological problem. It's when There's tumors that occur um, more at the skull base or on the surface of the brain or in less dominant parts of the brain um, that can really grow to to larger sizes. And then they can have subtle kind of um, uh, personality changes or problems with cognition and and that sort of thing. And and so they can present like that for sure.
1: Okay. And so then somebody gets a brain CT scan Mm -hmm. and it shows... An abnormal density, a right. mass there. Correct. But you can't necessarily tell if it's benign or malignant based on that.
2: Well, so oftentimes somebody, as you said, will will get a CT scan, um, and then really the better test for understanding brain tumors is an MRI. And so again, by the time they see me, they've already had the MRI, um, and usually that's done with contrast, which can you know help see whether or not there's any uptake of dye. Um, and again, you know, doing this day in and day out, we're fairly uh, good at, at being able to have a, an understanding based on the characteristics if, if the tumor is benign um, or malignant, being more cancerous. And so I always tell my patients that I like to be wrong and I hope to be wrong, but I um, especially if I think that it's a malignant tumor, um, but I usually have a pretty good idea um, based on just the MRI imaging alone. Um, but we don't know 100% until we actually have a piece of tissue. If we if we need the piece of tissue,
1: okay. And these even the primary brain tumors, the so-called glioma mm-hmm. type brain tumors, there are different categories in there. So there are that. Depends more on what the pathologist sees?
2: Correct. And so, and, and nowadays, molecular testing as well. And so um, there's, there's four grades to brain tumors. We don't stage them like, you know, cancers of the bodies do. Um, it's just grading. And so grades one through four um, of gliomas, uh, four being the most malignant, most aggressive, um, also known as glioblastoma. Um, grade 2, we refer to more as lower-grade tumors. Um, and so these have a more uh, benign clinical course, um, and what the pathologist sees usually you know, is more benign as well, um, but there's always the risk there for transformation of tumors becoming higher grades, such as the grade 3, uh, which is anaplastic, and of course grade 4 GBM. And so that's why um, we still treat those very aggressively. Um, in terms of of diagnosis and treatment.
1: And so what is the treatment approach today for these kind of tumors?
2: So uh, our treatment approach um, here at Yale really is to be um, as aggressive as we can um, in terms of removing as much tumor as possible. Um, but being as safe as possible and making sure that we maintain the patient's function, which, of, co- of course, is the goal of, of any surgery. Um, and so oftentimes we'll, um, again, see a patient after they've been diagnosed with an MRI, have a feeling as to what the tumor is likely, um and then if it is amenable to surgery if it if it if we do think that it should be removed again some tumors are are found by chance um and if they're benign we can usually follow them but for the ones that we're concerned about or the patient is symptomatic etc um then we try to remove as much of the tumor as possible and we have um certainly the resources and capabilities here to do that um as removing as much tumor as possible uh, has been shown to be beneficial in terms of outcome.
1: So the first thing will be like kind of this aggressive surgery, but still maintaining Absolutely. the neurologic function as the best degree possible.
2: Absolutely. And so oftentimes we, we do get uh, referrals um, where patients have been told they have inoperable brain tumors, for instance. And, you know, we see them and evaluate them. And, and a lot of times, a lot of times, Um, We can do certain um, things during surgery that makes the surgery safer, that allows the tumors to become more operable. For instance, um, we have um, really sophisticated neuromonitoring techniques, and so we're able to monitor um, motor function, even speech if necessary. Uh, with a weight craniotomy, again, not always, but when necessary, um, that allows me as the surgeon to remove as much tumor as possible um, but be reassured that the patient's function is being maintained. Um, so that allows me to, to really push the surgery as much as I can. Likewise, at Yale, um, we also use interoperative ultrasound um, as well as uh, neuronavigation, which is like a GPS system for the brain. Um, which, which also helps in terms of as much tumor as we can remove. And then, of course, we um, are the only center in the state that has an interoperative MRI. And so the beauty of that is, is I can remove tumor. Um, And, you know, as a brain tumor surgeon, I'm pretty good at telling the difference between tumor, what's tumor and what's brain. Sometimes it gets tricky, um, even with the microscope. And so um, we can get a quick MRI with the patient asleep on the table. And it's the same quality as an MRI that's done in the outpatient setting. And so um, we can then, uh, I can then go back and remove whatever tumor remains. Um, that I might have missed
1: so they have a big magnet right in the OR yeah. that they put the guy's head in
2: exactly so we um, so there's two rooms um, in the operating room and in between is is a big magnet is a big MRI um, and it's on um, tracks on the ceiling and it goes back and forth between the two rooms and one of the rooms also is is what we refer to as a hybrid operating room it's the only one I believe in New England the last I knew. Um, uh, that has angiogram capabilities. And so that also allows us, um, or I should say it allows my endovascular or vascular colleagues um, to do an angiogram at the time of surgery as well, uh, which certainly can make certain brain tumor surgeries, especially ones that are particularly bloody. Um, uh, it can help decrease the blood, the bleeding, um, and it also makes aneurysm surgery and, and other types of surgery like that uh, safer and more effective.
1: And you work with the radiologist on that.
2: The actually, it's a neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon. Yeah, it's it's an interventional, um, an interventional trained neurosurgeon. I so, see. yeah.
1: Cool. And so with this magnet thing, like, do you put people through a metal detector before they come in? Because you don't want stuff flying around.
2: No. Yeah, exactly. So, no. So we actually, everybody, everybody knows you have to watch a video before going into the MRI rooms and you have to... Go through certain training. I haven't done it in years, obviously, so I don't. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, (laughs) no, but I'm I'm cleared, (laughs) and um, and so um, absolutely, and so, but of course, the instruments that we use are all metal, um, so they have to just be certain, you know, uh, at a certain spot away from the field. Um, so when it's time for the MRI after I remove the tumor. Um, we'll then count all the instruments, all the needles, everything that's metal.
1: No, I kind of assumed you use non-magnetic metal. But...
2: No, no. The, the head frame that we put the patient in is, is non-magnetic, so there's a special one. But all the other equipment, um, not the anesthesia equipment, that's not metal either, but the, the surgical instruments all have to be put away um, and counted. And so it's, it's really quite an operation um, in this in the sense that um, there's, there's many people who make these surgeries happen and, and just happen so effortlessly. It's, it's pretty remarkable.
1: Well, that's exciting, thank you. So we're gonna take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about glioblastomas with Dr. Jennifer Moliterno.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca. Working to pioneer targeted lung cancer treatments and advance knowledge of diagnostic testing, More information at astrazeneca-us.com. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to removing multiple cores from the prostate for examination that may not be necessary. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: This is Dr. Howard Hoxter and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jennifer Moliterno, and we're discussing the surgical care of glioblastomas, high-grade or malignant brain tumors. So that sounds very um, fascinating about everything you do to try to get out every last malignant cell when you're operating on patients. Um, patients who have these high-grade brain tumors. So what are some of the other treatments that, after you've done the best surgery, that's possible?
2: So as I always tell my patients, with with glioblastoma in particular, and in, in even lower-grade gliomas, um, we are usually able to get as much of the contrast-enhanced portion or the portion of the tumor that takes up dye as much as we can. But these tumors tend to be infiltrative, and so there's usually microscopic spread of tumors that are beyond what um, we're able to see, even in the best of circumstances anybody can see in the operating room. And so it's very important um, that patients undergo uh, chemotherapy and radiation following uh, surgery. Of course, it's helpful um, to remove as much of that tumor as possible, as it makes the success of the chemotherapy and the radiation that much better.
1: And so, you work with a multidisciplinary team.
2: Correct. And so, after surgery, um, uh, usually the surgeries are, are tolerated remarkably well, um, as most people are usually surprised. but. Most tend to spend a night or so in the ICU, a couple of days in the hospital and go home. Of course, more complicated um, uh, tumors and such may require a little bit more rehabilitation. Um, But following that, uh, we will we, uh, we'll present the patient um, even after he or she leaves the hospital. We'll present at our multidisciplinary tumor board where other doctors um, who are just solely dedicated to treating brain tumors, neuro-oncologists, neuro-radiologists, radiation oncologists, neuropathologists, et cetera, um, will review each person and will come up um, with a plan. Um, and that usually will involve, uh, especially for glioblastoma, Uh, radiation um, in chemotherapy. Again, it's a very standardized protocol. Um, The chemotherapy that's recommended, which is given by the the neuro-oncologist, is an oral chemotherapy, and it's usually tolerated pretty well um, uh, by patients. Of course, then there's options for clinical trials and such, um, and being at an an academic center uh, with, again, this multidisciplinary type care uh, makes those options more available.
1: So what do you feel the advantages are of when you have these tumor boards, when you sit down with all these specialists, including neuropathologists who spend all their day trying to classify the tumors? It's one of the, I think, key things in deciding the grade and therefore the prognosis.
2: Absolutely. And so I I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't work in any other type of environment And, and if it was my loved one, I would be sure to, to find a place, and usually it's an academic place, um, such as Yale, um, that has such collaborative efforts amongst different subspecialists. These are people who, um, including myself, just dedicate um, our lives to treating people specifically with brain tumors. And so that's certainly an advantage for the patient, and it makes a real difference in terms of outcome. And I, I really couldn't do my job without the other people I work with.
1: And, I mean, what if you can take out the whole brain tumor why do people need these additional therapies?
2: So you can't take the whole thing out, as as I mentioned. They you can take out a, a large part of, if not even all of, the part of the tumor that takes up dye. However, with gliomas in particular, they they usually have cells that are spreading throughout the brain, um, and that extends beyond the area of the tumor that that is uh, that is taking up dye. Um, and so I always say no matter how good I am, no matter how good the surgery goes, um, I, there's always a role for chemotherapy and radiation with these tumors. And it's because I nor anyone can remove every piece of the tumor, unfortunately. I wish that I could. Um,
1: so there's some kind of microscopic cells microscopic, that are infiltrating absolutely. through yes. the brain tissue itself.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that's what, what, the, what the medications and the radiation really targets. And so my, my job is still an important one um, because I decrease the tumor burden for sure. And the more I can decrease the tumor burden, um, the less tumor there is uh, for the chemotherapy and the radiation to work on.
1: And people usually recover pretty quickly after surgery.
2: Absolutely, like this. yeah, so again, you know we we tend to be referred patients with more complex and, and complicated type tumors, and so there are certainly exceptions that that patients can have longer recovery periods, especially if they have a more complicated um, type of a tumor. Um, but by and large, for the most part, the vast majority of our patients, again, have a very, you know, uh, tolerate it very well, have a very short hospital stay and go home, able to take care of themselves. I always say, you know, they come back to clinic around um, 10 days, 14 days after surgery, and I, most of the time I can't even find the incision, you know, to, to remove the, the stitches and such because, um hair has grown back. We only shave a small piece of hair. Um, and so people do remarkably well.
1: That's really great to hear. It is. And um, and then um, the course of this kind of post-operative treatment with the radiation and mm-hmm. the chemotherapy, how long does that go on for?
2: So we usually uh, will wait about two weeks or so before we allow the radiation doctors and the, the oncology doctors to start. Um, their treatment, we just want to be sure that the the wound has healed and and that sort of thing, and then after that um uh the radiation is again pretty standardized, so about six weeks of treatment usually um and then um uh, they'll cycle that with the oral chemotherapy
1: and how long does that go on for?
2: it It usually goes on a regimen where they'll kind of come on and come off um and the the neuro oncologist manages that
1: okay. So um, uh, what is, you know, what is on the horizon that excites you for treatment of these malignant brain tumors? So in the near future?
2: In terms of, of surgery, you know, what excites me is, is the technology that allows us to push the surgery further. Um, and so for me, um, that's, again, things like the intraoperative MRI. Um, that's techniques in terms of neuromonitoring. That's performing awake craniotomies, again, when we need to, to monitor language, which is not in every patient, um, but refining those things that make the surgery as successful. As possible, in terms of trials, there's, uh, you know, that that's always um, uh, on the horizon. Clinical trials, in terms of of what we can do to better target the disease, as again, it's not, it's largely not a surgical disease. There's limitations with what the surgery can do, even in the best of circumstances. So there's some trials um, where we can actually inject, for instance, viruses into the brain at the time of surgery. We were involved uh, with a multicenter trial with that, um, which then allows um, a pretty benign and well-tolerated drug um, that the patient will take, um, and it converts it, actually, to a chemotherapy. Um, so it allows the patient to, to have less side effects, but, but, of course, the effects of, of the chemotherapy.
1: So you, like, you infect the tumor cells, and then mm-hmm. you take a pill to turn it on and kill them.
2: Uh, Yeah, and so I basically remove the tumor and then inject the virus into the resection cavity, and Mm -hmm. then that has an enzyme that that converts the the, um, well-tolerated drug into the, you know, not-so-tolerated chemotherapy right there. And
1: that's pretty... The, the viruses go specifically to tumor cells correct. and not the normal brain. Correct,
2: correct. And then other, you know, also kind of along the lines of, of surgery, um, every single brain tumor that we remove um, or even biopsy here at Yale, um, we uh, send to our tumor bank and to mm-hmm. our tumor labs. And and so not only do we, as you were saying, the importance of diagnosing the tumors properly, um, but we also look at the the genetic makeup of every tumor, and so every tumor here is is um, sequenced, um, and so we understand the mutation profile of all the tumors, and I think that will play a large role in the future in better targeting these tumors. Glioblastoma, for instance, has many, many, many. Um, mutations. And so it's incredibly heterogeneous and and just um, I think that's why um, chemotherapies have trouble with treating the tumor. Um, so the idea behind it, and of course, you know we refer to it as precision medicine, is to more precisely target the mutations in the tumors um, with drugs that are that are More appropriate.
1: Many of them have these IDH mutations, Mm -hmm. and so...
2: And so that we usually talk about in terms of the lower-grade tumors, um, but those are definitely important, and so um, that's one thing we check for um, uh, in terms of our markers, and that helps with with prognosis, but it also helps in terms of our decision-making, again, at the tumor board.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, the role of immunotherapy now mm-hmm. in, in these gliomas? How's and that so that's, going?
2: That's another um, very promising avenue. Of course, um, taking uh, a page from melanoma and from lung cancers and such and, and, and applying it um, um, to brain tumors has been incredibly important. Um, and so we have some of uh, those trials here at Yale, um, and the results have been quite promising. And so uh, that, as well as uh, small molecule inhibitors, for instance, um, I think that's where, again, um, as much as I like to think that um, a lot has to do with what I do, and it does to an extent, um, it's really um, the the medical treatment, I think, that that is going to allow us to to figure a way to cure this thing.
1: But clearly what you do in terms of surgery and and kind of reducing it to the minimum amount is really critical in helping people live the best for the longest time.
2: And not to mention that, you know, oftentimes these tumors, especially when they're larger, they'll have, you know, uh, they can cause headaches for patients. They can cause swelling in the brain. Um, They can cause problems too. And so oftentimes we'll I'll take patients to to surgery and they really do improve after surgery because that mass is gone. And so I think there will always be a role for surgery Um, and certainly for more aggressive surgery that's safe. And that's the key is making it as safe as possible.
1: So it sounds like we have a lot of technology that's in play here and a lot of expertise where people really work solely on brain tumors Mm -hmm. at the Yale Cancer Center, mm-hmm. this is a little different than people find in many places.
2: Yeah, I think um, it's certainly, you know, what you find at places like Yale, at, at Memorial, where I was, um, where you would expect. But um, I think when we're talking in terms of brain tumors, I think it's important to be at an academic center, such as, as the ones that I mentioned. I think people are sometimes reluctant when they hear academic um, because they think, I don't want to be a guinea pig and I don't want to, um, you know, have people practicing on me or, you know, whatever the myths are. But they're simply not true. What it it means is that there's a lot of people collaborating to make it the best care possible.
1: And so what's your advice to people when they you know, unfortunately, may find out that they have a brain tumor?
2: My advice is, um, you know, seek care at an academic institution such as Yale. We're always happy to see patients, always willing to see patients, and um, always uh, consider getting a second opinion. Make sure that the, the surgeon you're seeing is somebody who is a brain tumor surgeon, um, not just uh, a, really a neurosurgeon who also does other types of surgery. You really want an expert. You really want somebody who's specialized. And, um, and again, always seek a second opinion. It doesn't hurt.
0: Dr. Jennifer Moliterno is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.